0: This series has been based on Romans chapter 12, and this the title is a little bit of a play on words. It's it's been sort of a plan B year in a lot of ways. Like 2020, almost everything from about the middle of March on has been a plan B. It hasn't been what you were expecting. It, you know, what you're doing for Thanksgiving is probably not what you would have said if you had answered that question eight months ago. And so it's a plan B year, but we're also looking at Jesus' plan A for our lives. And that is that we would be certain things. And so Romans 12 really follows this structure uh, that fits in so perfectly with our mission statement. Our mission is is to reach people for Christ. That's the believe. To give them a place to belong. Obviously, that's the belong. And to help them grow in their faith. That's the become. As we increasingly become a family of families. That's to be holy and to be set apart for God. And so we've been looking at that and considering that and realizing that Jesus does have a plan A for each and every person in this room and each and every person that we'll meet. And I want to begin today by reading this whole chapter. If you're just joining us for this this last message, you can go back and listen to those messages on YouTube or on Facebook or in the Church Center app um, and catch up with us. But this will kind of catch, bring you up to speed um, as we work through this and read this uh, chapter of Scripture. So... Ro- Romans twelve is is a, is a turning point in the book of Romans. He spends the first eleven chapters uh, talking about the history of, of of God's people and kind of what is true for all of us and how we can be in a relationship with God. And uh, you should read it like you should read your Bible. You should read Romans. Uh, some have said it's the gospel according to Paul. I kind of like that. Um, but Romans twelve turns a page and there's a, a therefore at the beginning. And in, in that verse 1, that therefore is basically everything that's been said to this point in Romans 1 through 11. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so in week one, we looked at those two verses and we talked about how part of Jesus' plan A for your life is that you would believe that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He lived a perfect, sinless death, that He was lived a perfect, sinless life, died a horrifying death as the payment for our sins, and then was resurrected and raised from death to new life. And He offers each and every one of us new life through faith in Him. Part of His plan A is that we would believe. And so we looked at that encouragement from Paul that we would not be conformed, but we would be transformed. And we talked about how saving belief is transforming belief. The belief in Christ that saves us also transforms us into his image to become more and more like him. In week two, we looked at verses three through eight where Paul says, "For the, By the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach." If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. And if it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. And so in week two, we talked about belonging. And the part of Jesus' plan A is that you would belong to a body of believers, that you would not only believe in Jesus Christ as his as God's son, but that you would belong to a fellowship of other believers and that you would play a vital role in that fellowship by belonging there, that you would use the spiritual gift that you have in proportion to your faith to bless and encourage that body of believers as it seeks to bring more believers, more people into the family of God. And the more we belong together, the more we will become together. That was our bottom line in week two, probably my favorite bottom line out of the whole series. I don't know. This the, the one for today is pretty good too. God drops those little things in your mind. He's just like, wow, that's it. The more we belong together, the more we become together. Which set up week three where Paul talks in Romans 9 through 16, saying, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you; bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another and do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position do not be conceited and so in week 3 as we talked about becoming we talked about part of Jesus's plan A is that you would become like him that you would become like Jesus that you would become everything that God intended for you to be when he created you and obedience plays a big part in this in these verses 9 through 16, Paul gives one exhortation after another, one exhortation after another, and every single thing that he says describes Jesus, the person that we're trying to be like, the person that we're following through life, and freedom follows obedience. That was our bottom line, that we want freedom from sin, but we're not just freed from sin in a relationship with Jesus. We're freed to do the things he did, and we're freed from the sin that holds us back from doing the things that Jesus did. And that freedom follows obedience, choosing to do things His way, in His name, according to His will. There's just no substitute for obedience. You can't get around it. And then today, we're going to talk about being holy, that that these verses we'll look at today are where the rubber meets the road for a lot of us in truly pursuing a life of holiness. He says in verse 17 through 21, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so when we talk about being holy, we're talking about being set apart for God. That's what the word holy literally means. It's consecrated or set apart for or devoted to God. And we make ourselves holy as He is holy. And part of Jesus' plan A for your life is that you and I would be holy We'd be completely His. We would be set apart for Him and Him alone. And so there's an interesting progression in the book of Romans that we've tracked with this series that verses 1 and 2, when we're talking about believing, it's addressing our relationship with God. Verses 1 and 2 are all about our relationship with God. And interestingly enough, verses 3 through 8 address our relationship within the body of Christ. That we are to interact with each other in a certain way and belong to one another and be committed to one another and to serve one another in love. Then verses 9 through 16 now move out to another concentric circle, to the whole world. What What is our relationship with the whole world? To be loving, to be kind, to hate what is evil, to cling to what is good, to do all of the things that are listed in there as members of God's heavenly family. That's our relationship with the world. Verse 17 through 21 is addressing our relationship with our enemies with those who come against us, with those who stand against God, against his will, against his ways. It's telling us how we are to interact with our enemies, all of them, whether they are enemies that we find in our families, in our churches, in our culture, political enemies, national enemies. Enemies are a part of life, unfortunately, I wish I could tell you, if you get this right, if you do this perfectly, and you live just like Jesus, you'll have no enemies. But look at Jesus' life. Read the Gospels. He accumulated plenty of enemies by living a perfect, sinless life. Enemies are a part of life. But how we live with them really matters. And I would say that nothing tests our holiness, our set-apartness to God like an enemy. Will we really trust God when we're falsely accused? Will we really trust God when we're treated unjustly? Will we really trust God when somebody discriminates against us unfairly? Or when we're persecuted? Back in verse 1 and 2, Paul said, Do not be conformed to the image of, to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, the pattern of this world is... That when you have an enemy, hit first and hit back harder if you don't get the first blow off. And God's word says totally different. We're going to have to be renewed by, by the renewing of our mind. We're going to have to be transformed in order to, to do things God's way. To be holy and pleasing to God. We're not going to do things the way the world does things. Now, I want to give just a little disclaimer before we dive in and walk through this verse by verse. If you're in an abusive relationship or you're watching this online and you're hearing these words and you're in an abusive relationship, I'm not saying, and I don't believe Paul is saying that you need to make yourself a doormat and remain in an abusive relationship. That's not what God's word is saying here. Sometimes you need to set boundaries. You need to step out of that relationship. You need to get help and make sure that you're safe. So don't hear me saying something other than that as we work through this. When you have an enemy and you have a relationship that moves into enemy, enemy ground, Paul is giving us practical, applicable teaching for how we are to live in that. And that's what I want to look at today. Verse 17 uh, says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Really two different phrases there. I want to look at the first one first and the second one second. That just makes more sense, right? You see, the reason that we don't return evil for evil is that evil begets more evil in that pattern. And so if you're evil to me, you do something wrong to me, and I return evil for evil, now you return evil for evil, and we just spin on this crazy cycle that gets us nowhere good. And Paul is saying, reverse the cycle. Let that cycle end with you. Instead of returning evil for evil, return good for evil. Be willing to break the cycle. And I think the key word in that first phrase there do not repay anyone evil for evil, is the word anyone. There's no asterisk on my Bible. I don't know if there's an asterisk on your Bible, but I doubt it. He's saying don't return anybody, nobody, even if they vote for the other guy, even if they think totally different, even if they follow another God and try to kill people that don't. We don't return evil for evil because evil begets evil. But maybe it's not just the people out there that we need to hear this for. The anyone might be someone in your marriage. It might be someone in your family. It might be a brother or a sister or a neighbor or a coworker that we need to hear. Do not return evil for evil. Particularly with those enemies. That come up in life. We don't return evil for evil. In fact, James addresses this uh, in James 1, 19 through 20. He says, My dear brothers, do not take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. You see, anger always precedes evil or revenge. And then he says something that really caught my attention when I read this in the last month or so as I was moving through uh, the latter part of the New Testament. He says, For man's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. Your anger, your returning evil for evil, does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. It brings about just the opposite. And so he's saying, don't return evil for evil. Don't get angry. Don't get angry. Because our number one goal should be bringing about the righteousness that God desires. That's what Jesus came to do was to bring about the righteousness that God desires. That's what he commissions us to do, to go and make disciples and to teach them to obey everything he commanded us. So we don't return evil for evil. We are quick to listen. We are slow to speak. And we're even slower to become angry. And we don't return evil for evil because our number one goal is holiness. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, He fills you with His Spirit. He fills you with who He is. He fills you with a peace that passes understanding. He fills you with His Word. When you hunger and thirst for anything else, or when you settle for anything else, when you settle for, for revenge, you're left feeling empty. It doesn't fill you up. It empties you out. It doesn't make you more like Jesus. It makes you less like Jesus. And so He says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, And then you will be filled. The righteousness that God desires. And so we seek His holiness. We're hungry and thirsty for His holiness for ourselves, for our families, for our churches, and for the whole world. Can you even imagine a world where everybody is holy? Everybody is completely set apart for God. Everybody is a little Jesus walking around doing whatever they do. I think that's a picture of heaven on earth. I think that's what it's going to be like, is everybody worshiping God and loving one another and serving each other perfectly and beautifully forever. And then in the second half of that verse, he says, do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. I don't know about you. I think that's a pretty tall order today. Like, have you read social media anytime recently? In fact, there's a new version of the serenity prayer. It says, God, give me the grace to not read the comments, the courage to not read the comments, and the wisdom to not read the comments. Like, social media is off the rails. I could go to the Empire Mall, and I could start handing out $20 bills, and somebody would complain about it. Say, he should be giving out more. Or you shouldn't be doing that. He should be giving that money to the poor. Or it's, you know, some, I mean, it's like, how do you possibly do what is right in the eyes of everybody? I think it's become borderline impossible. And maybe it was back when Paul wrote this several thousand years ago. I think what he really means is do what's right in the eyes of God. Do what's right in the eyes of that audience of one. And when in doubt, go with Jesus. Do what he did. What would Jesus do is still a really, really good question to ask, especially if you're tempted to return evil with evil, because he wouldn't. And verse 18 really piggybacks off of verse 17 when it says, if it is possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, I think they really kind of go together. I think he's, he's kind of saying the same thing with the two verses. If it's possible, sometimes it isn't, and that's not your fault. But make sure it's not your fault. Like make, sure, make sure that you're not returning evil for evil. Make sure that you're returning good for the evil that you receive, because sometimes it's not possible to live at peace with everyone but make sure that you're doing your part. And I want to talk about the word peace here just a little bit, because when we talk about living at peace with everyone, you might get this idea that Paul's just saying, well, don't have conflict, you know. That's not what he's saying. You see, in the Hebrew culture, the word peace is the the word we translate as peace is the Hebrew word shalom, and it means so much more than the absence of conflict. True shalom is wholeness and prosperity and health and wellness and healing and and everything wonderful so that when you came into a Jewish home you would say shalom you would say peace on this house and when you greeted someone in the marketplace you would say shalom and when you departed from each other you would say shalom God's peace be with you and it was so much more than the absence of conflict it was the presence of God and everything good about him and so he's saying as far as it depends on you your part Your side of the equation, make sure that you're living at peace. If somebody is fully committed to not living at peace with you, then you're off the hook. But make sure it's not your fault, that you're not living at peace. Make sure that you have extended the olive branch, that you have done your part to live at peace, at shalom with everyone. Now, verse 19 and 20 kind of have to go together because he says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, is mine to avenge, I will repay Repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Great word picture. But the first part of that in verse 19 is is saying, basically, you can leave revenge to God. He hasn't commissioned you to take revenge. In fact, Jesus' final marching orders in John 13 were that we would love one another. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, he sets the standard. So you are to love one another. Jesus didn't take revenge. That's the first reason we don't take revenge. He didn't. But there's another reason that Jesus didn't, or another reason that we don't take revenge, and it's illustrated beautifully in a story that you'll find in the Old Testament. We don't have time to dig into it, but if you would want to get some extra credit today, like, remember high school and college when you you could get some extra credit. If you want some extra credit, I want you to read 1 Samuel 24 and 26, two chapters that follow a very similar plot line. And in each chapter, David is on the run from a maniacal King Saul, and he has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't take it. In fact, everybody would have said he was right to kill Saul. Saul had been throwing spears at him. Saul had turned on him. Saul was chasing him around, hunting him down like a wild animal. And David even had a cheering squad right behind him saying, take him out, man. Let's be done with this whole being on the run thing. Just kill him. Get it over with. And it highlights a really good reason why we don't want to take revenge because of the story that you want to be able to tell of your life. You don't want revenge to be a part of that story. And Andy Stanley really gets to the heart of this. He says, David almost included a chapter in the story of his life that he would regret for the rest of his life. Fortunately, in this case, he paid attention to that irritating tension that dinged his conscience. And he paints the picture with this little quote that you'll see on the screen. Imagine a little boy saying, Grandpa David. Tell us one more time about how you became king. You know, how you snuck up behind King Saul while he was using the potty and slit his throat? If you read 1 Samuel 24 and 26, that's one of the stories. David's hiding in a cave. Sam or Saul, sorry. Saul comes in to use the bathroom in the cave. The stage is set perfectly for David to slit his throat and to walk out as the new king. Like Hollywood couldn't write a better script. And David's got a group of men standing behind him, cheering him on, saying, go and do it. And yet he says, I will not lift a finger against the Lord's anointed. I won't do it. I don't want that to be a part of my story. I don't want my kingdom to be like all the other kingdoms of the world. I don't want my ascent to leadership to mirror or conform to the pattern of this world, but I've been transformed by my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to put my faith and my fate in the hands of God and trust that when the time is right, he'll take Saul out and put me in place. It's a powerful, powerful example. David got a lot of things wrong, but he got this one right. And you don't want to re- regret the story that you'll tell. And the last reason that I want to give you, you know, for verse 19, to not take revenge and to leave that in God's hands, is that you might be taking revenge on a, on a brother or sister in Christ. We don't know. We don't know where they are. And we don't know where they'll be someday. You might be taking revenge on a future brother or sister in Christ. You don't want that. You don't want that on your hands. We can leave that to God. He will take care of it. And if they do not repent, if they do not come to faith in Christ, then there'll be plenty of punishment. You don't need to add to it. Then he says, instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Now, there's a part of me that kind of likes that idea of putting burning coals on my enemy's head. Like, yeah that'll be all right and he's quoting proverbs 25 21 through 22 i mean the wisest guy who ever lived wrote that right so maybe there's something to it and i think there is a sense in which that's the case that when we heap burning coals on our enemy's head it, it gives them that feeling of shame when we return good for the evil that we receive when we don't take revenge but on the contrary we bless them that, that might cause them to feel ashamed for their behavior and to repent and to come to faith. There's a very good possibility, but my English study, uh, English Standard Version Study Bible makes a good point. It says burning coals in the Old Testament always have to do with punishment. And so there's a way in which it's saying, leave this in God's hand. When you receive some evil behavior and you don't take revenge, instead you choose to, to return that evil with good. You're adding to the punishment that they will receive if they do not repent. And if they do repent, then Christ is paid for their penalty, and you don't need to be involved in that. But there's a final reason that I really want to explore for a second, and that's that your enemy isn't really your enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul is talking about the armor of God, he says something really powerful at the beginning of that. In verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Your enemy, your human enemy, is not your real enemy. Your real enemy is the enemy. Your real enemy is Satan. Your real enemy is the spiritual forces that are opposing God in the heavenly realm that are causing your enemy to be a jerk, okay? You don't make things better by being a jerk back. And so what we're really doing when we choose to return evil for good, we break the cycle and we heap burning coals on our true enemy's head, on Satan's head on our spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms, enemy instead. And we do good to a brother or sister that's not beyond hope, that could be won back, that could be turned to repent and to be part of the family of God. Now Paul brings us all to a conclusion with a really powerful and simple statement. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's, I almost made that the bottom line of this message. Like, I don't know if I could say it any better. And then I was thinking about revenge, and I was thinking about some different words that were a big part of the message. And and so we'll get to that bottom line in just a second. But this is really a summary of Paul's point in this section, that we don't be overcome by evil. We don't be overcome by the temptation to do evil or to return evil for evil. Instead, we overcome evil with good. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Good overcomes evil in a way that evil can't overcome, just like light overcomes darkness in a way that darkness cannot overcome. And so we choose instead to let love win and to let it start with us. To let love win instead of returning evil for evil, instead of being overcome by evil, we choose to overcome evil with good. We choose love, and we choose to let it start with us. There's a story about Abraham Lincoln, who was the president during the Civil War, and towards the end of the Civil War, when the Union had the upper hand, he gave a speech, and in that speech he referred to to our fellow countrymen in the South, and he regarded them as fellow human beings. And so people strongly objected to that, and they said, they are not our fellow countrymen. They are irreconcilable enemies, and they deserve to be destroyed. And Abraham Lincoln pondered for a moment and responded saying, have I not destroyed my enemies when I make them my friends? That's how we deal with an enemy. As far as it is possible, we make them our friends. As far as it is possible for us, we make them our friends. We're not going to be overcome with evil. We're going to overcome evil with good. And so our bottom line today is that when you're hungry for holiness you'll have no appetite for revenge. When you are hungry for holiness, for set-apartness to God, you'll have no appetite for revenge. And when our hunger for holiness starts to wane, then our appetite for revenge might grow. So as soon as you feel that thought, thinking, "I I don't need to get mad, I need to get even. Take a step back from that thought. And say, has something happened? Have I stopped hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Have I stopped hungering for holiness? Because those two hungers don't coexist. If we're hungry for holiness, we'll have no appetite for revenge. If we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we will be filled. He promised it. And so when we hunger for holiness, it fills us up. It elevates us. It takes us to the new realm that God is on. And if we're hungry or we have an appetite for revenge, that's not going to fill us up. That's going to leave us feeling empty. When we are hungry for holiness, we'll have no appetite for revenge. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, as always, for your word. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name, to sing your praises, to worship you, to look into your word, to be transformed by your truth, transformed by a relationship with you. Help us to live this out, Lord. Help us to join you in overcoming evil with good. May we be holy, Lord, set apart for you, for your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.